0: Take her for a spin. Computer, can you put us in the Attachek Center on Orion? Wow, I never made time to go before I enlisted. Pretty cool, right? You can go almost anywhere you can imagine. Come on, Boimler, give it a whirl. I I don't know. Come on, there to be somewhere you'd love to be.
1: Um, computer, show us the warp core. Wow, amazing. What an impressive feat of engineering. Transfer complete.
2: Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge.
0: This is Tyler Orton taking a look at his sense (laughs) ores
2: and we have a very special guest beaming onto the cerritos waylon snedker hey thanks for having
0: me hey great to have you back on the show the
2: enthusiasm (laughs) 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 yeah good to have you back it's been a while since you've been on waylon and we're very excited for you to join us as we this week we are going to have second contact with lower decks on blu-ray
0: yeah look we had fun you know, week to week. Yeah, I guess last summer, last fall, reviewing all the episodes, and I figured we just wanted to take a bit of a break until we did like an overall season one review. But then, I think we had like a uh, Discovery premiere directly after, and then uh, by the time Discovery premiered, uh, it was we were like, well, the Blu-rays for Lower Decks will be out soon enough, and so that's why we kind of been putting off this song. And then Cam, I think we had to wait an extra six weeks to actually get our Blu-rays in the mail, right? That is
2: correct. It took a long time for them to show up, but I'm also right now waiting for a Loot Crate, and I got to say the Loot Crate experience has been far more frustrating than the Lower Decks Blu-ray. <laughs> I-
0: I've been there with you. I-, I don't know why I keep going back to Loot Crate, but it, it, sucked- it has sucked me in multiple times.
2: Yeah, it's uh quite an experience. Uh, who knows if it ever shows up? We'll see. Wait, what's Loot Crate? Ah, oh, what's well, like a um crate subscription service where they have a lot of geek paraphernalia. I signed up for the horror one to get the Jaws crate. Um, still waiting, still waiting. It's gonna be Fourth of July, you know, Prime Jaws time, but I don't think I'll be opening <laughs> a loot crate on that day. When when did you order it, Cam? Uh, April, March? I might have been yeah. no, it's late March. Yeah. Wow. Did they give you kind of a, a delivery estimate? No, they just I, I checked recently and it said. To, like delivered, marked as delivered, or something along those lines. Uh, like,
0: yeah, I had that issue with my last Star Trek loot crate. It said marked as delivered. And so I'm emailing them and saying, Well, what does this mean? It never came. And they said, Oh, we always do that. I'm like, <laughs>
2: Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there you go, folks out there. Um, just some cautionary advice for ordering from Loot Crate. <laughs> but but here's the
0: problem. If they ever come out with a Star Trek Lower Decks Loot Crate, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to buy it. Like, I, I'll get sucked in once more.
1: Are you guys sponsored by Loot Crate? Is this what this is? I
0: don't
2: think they'd want us to be... <laughs> i don't think they'd want to pay us right now (laughs) not based on our comments no (laughs) but i'm with you tyler like if they put a like lower decks or like a really flashy tos one uh, I'd sign up and i'd hate myself for doing it (laughs) what about tas oh that's an excellent question um i might i might because it would be so unexpected like there's not a lot of tas merchandise out there Um, the animated series Yeah, the original animated series. There's the um, book that came out fairly recently that I bought in uh, Vegas, which is fantastic. But I would be very tempted just because I would know there's not a lot of the merchandise out there like what's going to show up in that loot crate. Yeah. Okay.
0: Mm. Well, fellas, why don't we get into our overall takeaways on the first season of Star Trek's very first animated comedy or just comedy series in general kim it was interesting you know when we were watching it week to week i think uh, we went into it with a lot of uh, faith there's a lot of great uh, comments made from the creator of the show mike mcmahon he was telling us all the right things they had some talent behind it that we liked and so we had fun watching it week to week and i think maybe it it took itself to a different level towards the end of the season and I, i would say broadly speaking. On this rewatch, I realized that maybe the, the first couple episodes, maybe the first three or four episodes, I, I think there were elements in that that I liked and that we were able to dissect, but I think it's fair to say that um, they were still a little rough, and I think that happens often with any first season and look yeah look you make those first couple pancakes they come out a little burnt so you throw them away i think after a little while you get a hand uh, a handle for making pancakes and i think that's what we saw here in this first season of star trek the lower decks are you the psychologist on lower decks i'm the chicken man dr uh, chicken dr cluck or whatever his name was with your food metaphors oh my god <laughs> can you sound reference. like such a
2: fruitcake by making of comments <laughs> No, I I do agree with you, though, and that, yeah, revisiting it, it was bumpy in the first section, like I expected. That was my memory. But I will say this. Revisiting the pilot, which I think the first time around we enjoyed, um, we liked the tone, they were striking. I really had to admire how well that pilot sets up the character dynamics that are going to go on through the first ten episodes. That was something that I really walked away going, huh, like, we've seen a lot of Star Trek shows really stumble... In their first season in a lot of ways. And it felt like this one, at least from the pilot, which it's not the best episode of the season, but it really feels like they know who the characters are and what the dynamics are going to be for the whole, you know, first season and probably the show.
1: Uh,
0: Well, the thing, though, uh, I found Mariner actually kind of annoying the first couple episodes. And Mm -hmm. and I I found it particularly annoying in episode one, but you're right in, in terms of character dynamics and just how the characters all go back and forth with each other. I think, other than Mariner, I think they had a very good hold on pretty much everyone and what their dynamics are going to be. And it also, it could just be Mariner had a lot of trans, a lot of chances and opportunities to grow throughout the season. I think where you see her in episode one versus episode ten, I think that it's probably just part and parcel of you know organic character growth there. But uh, Whalen, what's your overall kind of broad sense of what this first season of Star Trek's first ever comedy was like for you?
1: Well, I was curious what you guys thought about. The series that wasn't great because uh, I enjoyed the whole thing, but I do understand that your point of Meritor being kind of annoying early on. So did you think some of the other characters were annoying? I, well, okay.
0: So stuff that didn't necessarily work for me in say episode one, uh, it was just a real exposition dump. It was literally people walking down hallways, explaining everything, telling you what everything was versus Mm -hmm. showing. Yep. Um, there's other episodes, you know, like uh, I think it was Temporal Edict. Um, that's just kind of uh, j- just nonstop alien attack of the week, and that happened I think a lot for the first three or four episodes. It's like every episode climax with these. Um, very hard to follow action sequences, and all of a sudden the story just wraps up magically. So those are kinds of moments where it kind of shook me out of it. And also, there's some of the comedy bits; they did fall flat for me. Um, I think it got a little bit more consistent, and certainly in terms of tone that it was trying to strike. Um, I think those last three episodes very, very strong though. Like overall,
2: yeah, yeah. I found like for me, uh, the issues came into. It felt like there was two things they really nailed down as the series went through their first season. Number one was the concepts of episodes. Um, I look at an episode like Temporal Edict, which Tyler mentioned, about buffer time, and I don't think they really knew how to turn that into a story. Like I think they struggled to make sense of what buffer time is and why it matters and how it affects the outcome of the various elements of the story. And then second of all, I think the stories got better as we went. I think by the time we're getting to like Cupid's Arrow onwards, they've locked down on how to actually tell a 22 minute fast paced story. Whereas I looked at an episode like number two, uh, Envoys, which is, you know, it's a fun half hour, but it feels like a series of events more so than a story for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they're still just amazing sight gags
0: like Mm Boimler in that super long dress uniform. (laughs) <laughs> you know like like those are the funny things about yes. star trek that's they're not making fun of star trek but they're 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 playing around with some of the tropes of the universe and I, it, it's mostly it's the throwaway stuff that i like more than the setup setup punchline sort of comedy so that was just my personal feeling but um so with all that in mind whalen like um it, did it come off as like kind of strong and consistent throughout? Or did you notice like like in your own opinion that it did kind of
1: have an ascent as the uh, season went on? I think it did its duty to live up to its predecessors where the beginning of the first season is always kind of shaky. Um, but you were saying that there's a lot of exposition early on. And I actually found, I, I didn't really know where the show was relative to the rest of the universe. So, you know, they they bring up Riker and he's the captain of the Titan and there's Deanna and everything like that. But that I didn't feel like it was cemented in the actual, the world that they'd built up outside, other than, you know, some like allusions to specific characters. Um, so I I would have liked to see them have... Uh, Maybe not an effect on the rest of the universe, but you know, delve deeper into like, okay, well, what's going on with uh, is is Picard? Like, what's the year? Twenty three eighty? Where's Picard and all this? Um, but I actually haven't even seen the Picard series, so maybe that... <laughs> you don't want to know where Picard is. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what do you guys agree? Do you think it it, it could have? Um, gone further into the rest of the characters that have been created you know like bring up data or something like that or i don't know i
0: i would prefer the show try to strike out on its own as much as possible at least in a a first season you know like we already have kind of star trek card on television right now we did see Riker and Troy by the end, and that was like a delightful treat. And it sounds as if they'll be doing some interesting stuff with the USS Titan in season two. I, I I honestly, I would kind of be rolling my eyeballs if there was like a legacy character popping up for nostalgia's sake, you know, like every couple episodes. But they do have some allusions to, you know, characters, you know, they're mentioning positronic brains, you know, I think when it came to Peanut Hamper, for example. Oh, yeah, so. I was going to
1: ask, is Peanut Hamper from TOS?
0: uh peanut hamper is one of the exocomps from next generation i think it was Uh, cam is that episode called quality of life it is yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah i remember seeing that i don't know that figure and i was like okay that i've seen that before so that's cool
0: but but there's even like little things like uh from the next gen era like the pack lids you know, like popping up as like the universe's dumbest uh, foes, you know, and that every time they see a starship, they call it an Enterprise, you know, just like, <laughs> oh, those are
1: the ones in uh, No Small Parts, right?
0: Yeah, it's, it's like that sort of stuff. Like, I, I just find like really, really amusing. And like, I, Cam, I think there have been um, I don't know, interviews saying that uh, maybe the Paklids could be kind of the ongoing enemy, which is, I, I think, kind of perfect for a show called Star Trek Lower Decks.
2: And also, I mean, we would never get Pakleds as a major antagonist in another Star Trek series. Like, that is really exciting to me in that um, they can ground it in this world. It's very recognizable. We can see elements cross over. We can see, you know, a Ferengi show up in uh, Envoys, for example. But the show is so specific to its tone. And the fact is, these characters who are on the Cerritos, they are not going to be journeying into the same territory as a Picard or... Any other really elite Star Trek character, you know, by and large, because, well, they're doing second contact missions and like cleanup missions. Like yeah. they're not net, you know, they're not necessarily going to be, um, you know, flying alongside the Titan. Although we do get that at a certain point, so I'm cool with them kind of occupying this very odd place in Star Trek canon, but having kind of the heavy hitters kind of journey into that world occasionally and kind of maybe even raise their eyebrow at it a little. Yeah, I totally agree,
1: and I don't mean that they should. Be on the same
2: level as you know, Riker
1: card or anything like that. Just it, I think, a little bit more exposition to describe the stakes of uh, of the Starfleet at the moment
2: would have been great.
0: Uh, You know, like, uh, maybe just establishing it's right after the destruction, or I, I guess the destruction of the Romulan Senate, but before the destruction of Romulus itself, you know, like, you're, you're just kind of hoping for more of a check in on like, kind of the state of the Federation, especially if it's just a few years after the Dominion War. Is that kind of the idea?
1: Yeah, exactly
0: i don't know it, for me it's like kind of there, there there's so many different little corners of the star trek universe that i'm sure that they can keep mining uh things for more material like they're even um kind of the references to you know how nobody wants to visit cardassia prime hmm. they're being creepy and it's kind of like okay so they are <laughs> you know kind of making fun of the cardassians but they're also kind of saying yeah they haven't just disappeared you know and, and but the thing is like i, I think by keeping it um Undefined to a certain degree. That uh, leaves the door open for other stories that they can tell involving, say, the Cardassians down the road. And I mean, whatever that uh, dance was, that Cardassian dance that Freeman had been practicing, I-, I would love to see
2: that one day. For example, <laughs> <laughs> I think they also want to just portray more of the general concept of Starfleet, so they can poke at the observations as to how Starfleet operates. Like they talk all about, you know, the bureaucracy of it, and. You know, how occasionally they interfere, but it's only sometimes. Um, Aspects like that, whereas I think if they made it too specific, like, you look at... I know, Waylon, you haven't watched Picard, but they delve a little more into how Starfleet is actually existing in the Picard era. Mm -hmm. And it's like, when you establish it that specifically, I don't know that you can have as much fun with it.
0: Yeah, I guess we did get to check in on the state of Starfleet and the Federation in the Picard
2: era... Uh, while we were watching season one of Picard Cam. Uh-huh. Was that enjoyable to watch? Uh, well, it's definitely not a Starfleet that I want to see, um, you know, really visited that often.
0: Yeah, whereas oh. I had a lot more fun just checking out <laughs> kind of the, the state of things here in the Lower Decks side of Starfleet. You
2: know? We're breaking Wayland's heart right here. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, well what, what's the deal?
0: It's just Starfleet's lost its way by the time uh, we get to Picard. And um, it, you know how like every time an admiral would show up on um, TNG back in the day, and the admiral was always a jerk and they were always wrong. Yeah. Well, just imagine all of Starfleet was populated by those kinds of characters. You know.
1: Oh, I already assumed that was the case. <laughs>
0: yeah. But it just it, it wasn't particularly as aspirational as Lower Decks was, and, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit later on with the um. Extras uh, that we'll we'll be Discussing the Blu-ray extras Uh, But uh, Cam there was a moment that I I will Just highlight where the creator of the show Mike McMahon Said that he essentially wanted to create A a show like It's the 1990s Mm -hmm. right now And so he is really kind of um, leapfrogging off of like the tone and the spirit of next generation in a way that i think the uh, the rest of the kurtzman era is trying to move on its own path which i i i do want star trek to not just be like a retreat of itself but i think Laura did it in a very fun way and because you're in such a different sort of setting one like we really haven't explored yet i think that they are doing that in a very unique way even if like the the tone is very familiar to us
2: yeah, I'm curious, like, Waylon, where do you come down on that, the setting it up as sort of existing in that Berman kind of era, in terms of its vibe and feel? What do you mean, come down on it? Like, are you enjoying that? Is something? Is that something that you were hoping for, to kind of return to more of that DS9, TNG kind of feel to what Star Trek is?
1: Yes, but I will say, and I think Tyler was saying this earlier, um... I appreciate that they can take some liberties because they're not tied to anything. Um, you know, they can be lewd. They can make jokes. To the rest of the characters, they can kill off characters like shaxas dying at the end. Uh, well, maybe dying. Um, so it's, I, I guess all I want is just a bit more info um, of where they are. I found it really difficult to, to understand, but Maybe they expect every viewer coming in to have, like, just watched the previous shows and to at, at a glance understand what's going on. But because I haven't watched TNG or DS9 in like years, it, it was it was tough for me to grasp the the stakes and um, I guess just yeah, there were so many action moments. It would have been nice for them to slow down, take a breather, and be like, okay, here here we are and um, like, this is our mission. This is where we're going. And they didn't really do that?
2: Right. Well, it's a very fast-paced show for sure. They don't slow down and do Smell the Roses very often. Um, I think that was something Tyler and I struggled with early on. I remember when we were tackling the first handful of episodes on the weekly reviews. And we would often say, like, boy, this show is really flying by. And it wasn't until I think we got to, like, episode four or five... Um, where it felt like, okay, either we've adjusted to the pace or the show has settled down into itself a little more. Right.
1: Okay.
0: I, I think it's those moments where you, those kind of hangout moments, those are the things that are going to stick with you, make you more attached to a show as you get more attached to the characters versus like, hey, look... It's a high concept action scene yet again, and I think one of the things with animation, and maybe the writers realized that they could kind of break free of what they were tapping into, is with animation, you're not confined by how many you know uh, sets you can afford to build or how many space shots versus you know interior bottle episodes you can do because it all costs the same amount of money, you know. Uh, So I I think maybe they were just trying to go like, hey. Let's go hog wild if we can have as many aliens we want in a single scene. And then they realize, you know, what it's actually fun if you can just kind of settle in with the characters more than just, you know, do this MTV style, you know, editing where you're just going back and forth, you know, from plot A to plot B, plot C. And I, I think the show definitely did kind of settle in by um, Cupid's errant
2: arrow. Yeah, that's the episode that always jumped out to me, too. And revisiting it, I was a little wary. Like, is this going to be the... You know, is this going to kind of pop the bubble as, like, this is the really fun episode? No, it still holds up, and it does feel, like, very much... I don't know that it's, like, a drastic shakeup in what the show's going to be. It just feels like the elements really came all together, and it was like, okay, this is the type of story we can tell. And it's just... It's so crazy how it feels so consistent from that point forward. Like... Um, You know, there's the episode um, Terminal Provocations, which wasn't one of my favorites of the season, but I also wouldn't argue that it has, um, like, major story problems in terms of, uh, you know, feeling frantic or rushed. Like, it's one that just doesn't really connect with me that much, but it at least feels confident in what it's doing.
0: Yeah, with terminal provocations, it it was a busy episode story wise. I, I think there was like an A B C story as they're going back and forth between like the Badgy stuff and all that. <laughs> but um, it didn't feel as if I I was lost at moments the way that I was in like maybe the first you know three or four episodes. So it, it, it's interesting how that, I just think they got um, it 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 takes a a couple you know cycles to kind of figure out the rhythm of things. And I think they got a good handle on that, which makes me looking forward to
2: what they're going to do in, uh, seasons two and three moving forward. And we've cited, um, Cupid's Air and Arrow as an episode that really connected with us, Waylon. At what point in the run did an episode pop up that really made you kind of sit forward and go, Oh, like, I really like this one.
1: Oh, great question. I probably about the same time, but Veritas was one that I just absolutely adored. Um, mainly because I thought it was the the most entertaining and funny one. Um, honestly, none of them connected with me too much on a storytelling character development level until, I don't know, maybe Crisis Point, No Small Parts. It seemed like Mariner was coming to terms with her character a bit more. And... um Yeah, so it was pretty
2: late, late in the show for me. Yeah, like it feels like at that point, those last two episodes you're mentioning, they really do hone in on the character of Mariner in a big way and and some of the other characters in um, No Small Parts. But the Mariner stuff, like you look at an episode like Moist Vessel where we get her being promoted, which I think is amazing. Like a lot of the comedy through that episode is really solid in how it examines her character. But it feels like they really refine it in those last two, and actually establish for the audience why this character—it's not just funny, but also very compelling. Yeah.
0: Well, why don't we kind of uh, mosey on to some of the other kind of broader points here as well? Uh, when we first started getting kind of the uh, the design work of Lower Decks coming out, I honestly thought that the Cerritos looked kind of goofy. Rewatching like the uh, the series all in one go, though, I just I really have to appreciate the ship design. I really do think, especially an episode like Crisis Point, where you've got the beauty shots, you know, trying to uh, kind of emulate that classic scene from the motion picture. I really, really came to appreciate what they're doing with ship design. We also see that with the appearance of the USS Titan, also looking gorgeous, and the USS Vancouver. Those are all the three uh, distinct ship designs. It was kind of weird that we kept seeing like the um, California class ship repeating again and again and again but maybe that's just indicative of all these ships are on kind of like loser missions and mm. that's the class of ship that's always just dispatched to those missions
2: i'm curious tyler how would you rank the um i guess title ships or lead ships on the new kurtzman Aero shows you've got the discovery You've got the Cerritos, and you've got the La Serena from Picard. What's the order for you?
0: Well, I I guess La La Serena at the bottom, just because I I said it as we watched the series the first go, but if you asked me to draw it on a napkin, I would struggle. I got a much better sense of what the ship looked like uh, on our most recent rewatch of the series. Um, So I do appreciate it more. uh, But then after that, I'd have to go with uh, Discovery, um it's just like it it seems as if it's not quite emulating all the riches available to it being from that classic era it it just looks a little bit too advanced you know i i wish it took more of that classic era look uh the one time that we did see it was in i think it was uh, magic to make this oh not magic to make the scene oh no no sorry it was magic to make the scene mango Sane, or <laughs> <laughs> magic to make <laughs> I'll just call it magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it was uh, when we saw the Baron's ship uh, when he was off to retrieve Harry Mud. Yeah. You know, and then I, I guess uh, top of the list, I would have to say the Cerritos and that's not what I would have thought, you know, uh, maybe a, a year and a half ago or something like that. When we first saw the design of the ship, I just thought it looked kind of dumb with how the deflector dish is detached from the saucer, but, Attached to the nacelles, like I thought that was a little strange, but um, it just I can picture it in my head. And and again, I'll I'll make an allusion to the um, the special features is in one of the early designs for the ship. You actually saw how the uh, clasps that go from the saucer section to the nacelles they actually had like windows. They were much thicker, so it made it more clear how that was actually going to connect between the the saucer the nacelles and then the deflector sh- uh dish and uh, either way I, I
2: i just really do appreciate the design more but uh, cam what would your rankings be i think i'm the same as you actually um la serena i'm open to giving that one you know another shot in season two picard la serena what i'd like is that it is different from what we've seen as our flagship you know ships So it's something that I would like to see maybe when Picard's all said and done, that I have like real fondness for a ship that looks that different from the Enterprise or Voyager. Um, We'll see. They haven't really established it in a way that really excites me yet. But um, I think the difference for me, though, is when I look at the Cerritos, um, it understands the grandeur of Star Trek starships. And that's something that in the past series, pre-Kurtzman era... They always were really good at establishing, whether it's, you know, the original Enterprise, even the Voyager or NXL1. They knew how to showcase those ships, so you had real awe just seeing them fly through space. I don't think Discovery's done that yet. And I don't really understand why, you know, they've had some really interesting, unique aspects of that ship... ...in terms of the, you know, the rotations it does when it, you know, whatever, zaps to the next galaxy or whatever. Um, Things like that are cool, like they're unique to it, but I don't get the same awe watching Discovery do anything as I do watching the Cerritos, which I think is established really well flying through space, even in those opening credits. I think the best Discovery moment was probably the ship flying into the future at the end of season two, but that's really about it for me.
0: Do you think the issue with Discovery is that they don't like sitting with moments for very long? Like, they really do seem like to go with that like boom, boom, boom sort of pace, you know, and that makes it tough for them to devote... Uh, much time towards like these kind of beauty shots that we get with the Cerritos, especially in, you know, Crisis Point. It just doesn't really happen in Discovery, and I think they kind of like it that way.
2: I think so, and it's one thing, you know, we'll talk about features later, but that's one thing they touch on in one of the documentaries is that they wanted to have those opening credits showing off the Cerritos because the audience would become very familiar with what that ship looks like and how it feels without having to constantly throughout the show cut to exteriors of the ship. I guess with the Discovery main titles you're very familiar with animation styles
0: uh from that era but I don't know it's just it doesn't quite uh make you as familiar with the ship design as watching those uh Voyager um credits every single week.
2: Three seasons in I still don't know what to make of those those Discovery credits.
0: I I, <laughs> I still can't get over how boring the um the mu- the main theme is. Like it's just Jeff Russo's music just doesn't do it for me. Whereas I think Chris Westlake's score here on Lord Dax, that's exactly what I want from Star Trek.
2: Where do you come down on the Cerritos in terms of newer ship design, Waylon?
1: Yeah, I was kind of thinking, um, I, I, I'm
2: probably not the
1: best person to ask because I haven't, I'm not familiar with the newer ships. Um, I, I wanted to ask the Voyager, the Spoon, what is that ship called? that's an intrepid class, that class yeah. intrepid class yeah. right where does the cerritos line up from the intrepid class to i don't know the enterprise from tng like uh in terms is, is it like way more advanced uh no i, I, I they're contemporaries okay okay um I mean, the one thing I will say, it didn't. The Cerritos doesn't stand out at all to me. But again, like I'm not familiar with the how the nacelles should really look, or you know, the the overall layout. Um, I'm curious
2: how big the Cerritos is relative to I don't know the Titan. It looked pretty similar in size, didn't it? They were flying side by side. It's pretty close. Yeah, I, look, so I, I'm looking at my front cover of the uh,
0: Blu-rays right now. And honestly, I think the, <laughs> the um, saucer section of the Cerritos, it looks as if it would be maybe half the size of the Enterprise-D. I think fewer decks, but just in, terps, in terms of the uh, circumference, it'd be about half.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a little scout ship then. Yeah.
0: All right, well, um, so overall, like, uh you looking forward to season two, or is this kind of a, a take, it, take it or leave it sort
1: of inaugural season for you, Waylon? Oh, looking forward to season two. I think that's, what, August
2: 12th? Yeah, when it comes out. coming up quickly here. So I'm, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm curious, Waylon, which characters have jumped out to you? Like, when season one was over, which were your favorites? Oh, Peanut Hamper, for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Tiana, because she's, like, always coming up with the, the more lewd comments, which I think is hilarious just because the show has never had any of that stuff. Um, but I, sort of on a related note, what if you could have these guys meet any race or previous character in the universe, uh, which, which character or which race would you like them to run into? I would love it if there was, like, an errant Weyoun
0: clone still, like, uh, somewhere in the Alpha Quadrant right now. And they uh, got Jeffrey Combs to uh, bring back his character somehow.
2: (laughs) I'm trying to think. For me, I would like to see, because we, you know, we have the Paclids, right? And that was a one-time species that was kind of goofy and you never thought you'd really see again. Um, And they're doing it really cool. I would like to go back to maybe like an original series, Alien Species, that just never would have fit in salt the world. Vampires. Of... Well, yeah, we got Salt Vampires. We got, a we got gorn Landry, wedding. We got a Gorn wedding. I would like to go back to something like, for example, the aliens from the episode The Apple. The ones that worship the giant, you know, stone snake. Um, (laughs) I think something like that could be really fun. Or even maybe the space hippies from the Wade Eden. You know, uh, obviously those ones didn't end up well. But there's probably other space hippies out there somewhere. Like, that's the sort of species you would never get on Star Trek Picard. Probably Discovery. um, Probably not Strange New Worlds. So that's the sort of thing I would like to see them work in. Like, work in some of these kind of hard to adapt into modern sensibility, alien species into the continuity and canon of Lower Decks. And so it doesn't feel like they were kind of like one and dones, you know, 50 years ago.
1: What about the, um didn't they have like the Greek gods mm-hmm. in an episode of uh, TOS?
2: Yeah, they dealt with a lot of gods. There was Apollo in, uh, the um, second season of the original series. You also had like the Mayan God in the animated series um, right near the end of of Star Trek The animated series. So like, there's a lot of uh, alien God figures that we could bring back just things like that, that I just don't think Picard season three is going to deal with him taking on like a Mayan alien God. I I mostly just want to see those Irish
0: colonists from up the long ladder and TNG uh, make a comeback.
2: Oh Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You think we'll see Finnegan on Lower Decks, Tyler, in some way? Um, no, I don't. Yeah, you don't think you'll so, maybe a reference to that or maybe something? a reference.
0: Uh, I just yeah, nothing's impossible, but I think it it's improbable that Finnegan, who would have died a hundred years earlier, um. Is on lower
1: decks. Wait, who is Finnegan? What about time travel? Finnegan again? Oh,
2: Finnegan's from the episode Shore Leave of the original series. I, I just—I don't tonight. think they're going to use time travel to bring back Finnegan. I think they would <laughs> e- use it for another character. <laughs> uh, I'm pointing into the stands like Babe Ruth. That's where we're going with lower decks season two.
0: I—I <laughs> I know anything's possible. I just look at what's most probable, and I—I don't think that—that's a probable return.
2: Sure. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Well, hey
0: Waylon, we'll cut you loose. We're gonna dive into the special features now, but I just want to thank you. And look, when uh, Lower Deck Season Two is on the airwaves, uh, coming up August, September, October, let's get you back on. We'll uh, get you to do kind of a uh, another recap uh, with us.
1: I would love that. Thanks for having me, guys. Excellent. Anytime. Hey Waylon,
0: uh, before you go, uh, if somebody wants to look you up on Twitter, where would they find you?
1: Uh, it's Waylon Snedker. W-A-Y-L-O-N-S-N-E-D-K-E-R. And I'm a game developer, so you can check out my game, Odd Realm.
0: Uh, how dare you try to promote your yeah. uh, your plug. company? Shameless plug.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Don't you believe in 24th century economics?
1: <laughs> nope, not yet. <laughs> okay,
0: Well, Waylon, great having you uh, join us on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Timba, his arms wide. <laughs> Shaka, when the walls came down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right
0: thanks guys cool. yeah okay yeah it was always great to have waylon on the show but uh fortunately for him he was not waiting on tenterhooks for those steelbook blu-ray sets that's uh it took a long time for them to be delivered to canada but uh cam we got to devour the dvd or blu-ray extras i should say here um i i i appreciate how we got like two hours worth of extras i really do but one, and there are some great things included in here. But one of the things mm-hmm. I need to touch on, and it's consistent through the Kurtzman era, is that a lot of the time I feel um, we're scratching the surface on a lot of these things. Whereas I go and watch those TNG extras from you know ten years ago, and they are revelatory in just how candid people are willing to be. And I think we just have to come to terms with the fact that. um this CBS Viacom Kurtzman era as of now, they're just not getting to get into the real dirt, you know, that uh, maybe we'll have to wait another 20, 30 years for the the uh, tea to be spilled, so to speak.
2: Yeah, it's a lot like Lucasfilm's handling of Star Wars, where George Lucas used to be very open about the process and gave the green light to books that really delved into the development of the films and what the problems were. And then Lucasfilm was like, mm, no, no. No problems here. We're fine. Um, So I guess that's more of the studio model now when you have these IPs that are so valuable. They just want to protect everything there is to say about them. Um, It's frustrating. But I I will say, like, I appreciated that the Lower Decks Blu-ray special features really did allow so many people who worked on Lower Decks to have input. It didn't feel like one or two people guiding us through the season. It felt like they were actually doing everything they could to give a broad overview as to everything that was going on in terms of the development and the various characters. So that's great.
0: Well, one of the special features that I liked is they just broke down the animation process in a very clinical way and explained why it takes, you know, about a year from writing the script, doing the storyboards, doing the animatics, uh, doing the voices, you know, doing the compositing, uh, doing the actual animation itself, bringing it all together in editing, uh, both for vocal and just kind of the uh, visual editing uh, blaring music, like the, the cam that like, uh, this is the kind of stuff that I live for in, in that I feel as if I gained a lot of value versus just listening to people dropping platitudes about like, this is the greatest show ever, or I love my <laughs> cast, you know, that's the sort of stuff I'm like, I, I don't care.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed that one as well. And it also um, very much solidified that I have no future in the animation (laughs) world because this seemed so complicated to me that while they're breaking it down logically so I understand exactly what they're saying in terms of the process, I'm going, I I could never do this. This is well outside of my uh, field. This would
0: seem like far more complex than when they were like rotoscoping
2: like Snow White like a hundred years ago. Oh my god. (laughs) I mean, the Snow White stuff is astonishing in terms of the number of people doing everything by hand. That's where, to me, I'm in awe of that, but I can wrap my head around that more. Whereas, like, with the Lower Decks, the way they talk about the breaking down of the process and the scheduling and the multiple years going into, like, an episode, I'm like, oh my god. I'm always amazed at the patience people that work in animation have. Um, you know, you shoot something live action, you can start editing it together. I mean, nowadays, the night after you shoot it, basically. Um, and in animation, it's just this long waiting game that, like, who knows what you have at the end, right?
0: Well, I remember um listening to the DVD episode commentaries uh, for The Simpsons, and the showrunner, I think it was Al Jean, um, at the time, he was saying that what he wishes he would do more moving forward with the series is listening to the reactions in the room when they do the initial read through with the cast because he said the problem with animation is you've heard the joke about a million times before it ever makes it on screen and so you you keep second guessing yourself and thinking oh is this actually funny am I just sick of this joke you know and I, I think that's one of the challenges that you have with kind of an animated comedy like this Lower Decks.
2: Yeah, and one thing The Simpsons had going was they would often record all together. Um, Whereas I don't think Lower Decks is doing that. Obviously not during the pandemic, but I don't think that's their process.
0: Well, yeah. And so one of the things I wish they delved into a little bit more, we saw that with Don Lewis, who uh, plays Captain Freeman. That they showed us her setup for recode, uh, recording remotely amid the pandemic. I wish we kind of knew more about what the animators were doing and how they were adjusting to the pandemic. Because, like the pandemic happened about six months. Um before Lower Decks even premiered. So they were doing a lot of this work from home or maybe social distancing within the animation houses here in Vancouver. Uh, I would have loved to learn more about that, you know, not just from kind of
2: the, uh, the perspective of the actor. That is an excellent point. I would have enjoyed a documentary, you know, producing TV during the pandemic. And maybe that's not something they felt like people wanted to watch right now. Yeah. <laughs> people are like, "I don't care." But the thing is, uh and for those who haven't watched these special features, they are clearly shot through like Zoom. They had to, you know, impose video from the actors or the artists or what have you. Um you know, the writers, um, from Zoom video, and then they put it, you know, in front of, um, you know, Star Trek backgrounds or space images, that sort of thing. But I was totally fine with it because I understand entirely why it looks the way they do these special features. But I am fascinated to show these to someone in like 10 years and just get their input as to why they look like this. At least they weren't wearing face masks while they were recording, right? (laughs) True, but it looks like Max Headroom. (laughs)
0: well but it was also kind of disconcerting when you would go through you have like mike mcmahon who you've got like light shining on one side of his face through all his interviews and you'd see kind of the old lamp uh reflecting in his glasses and then you cut to like say heather Caden or alex kurtzman and it was very clearly shot on like in a studio on like hd cameras and i was just (laughs) like oh these fellas, like they get kind of the special treatment here, but um, 99% of the other people featured in the
2: special features aren't. Yeah. The Alex Kurtzman video always made me laugh because it was just like, this man has the greatest camera footage possible for these special features. <laughs> of course.
0: <laughs> but, um, you know, I, you know, I, I do want to go backwards because I, I just realized you were talking about like just the opportunity for the actors to record together. I was listening to the official Star Trek podcast uh, just this past week. And they had Jack Quaid. Uh, he was the guest on it. And of course, this is uh, show is co-hosted by Paul F. Tompkins, who does the voice of the, the Doctor Chicken therapist, and Tawny Newsom, who of course plays Mariner. And uh, Newsom and Quaid, they were talking about how uh, because of the pandemic, they've only really had the opportunity to socialize, uh, you know, just once. Uh, but they were able to do like recordings together. Because Mike McMahon was saying that, yeah, you guys can have opportunities to do improv here. So I I, I don't think they're necessarily in studio together, but maybe they were recording scenes live, you know, remotely together. Maybe that was the, kind of the opportunity to do improv there. So it's just, it's just interesting, like how, man, you, you're trying to create like Star Trek's first comedy and you have to do it all remotely. That, that is kind of a weird experience.
2: It is. And you do get snippets of outtakes of the show that they, you know, stream throughout the various um, special features. And you'll get to hear the actors riffing in moments. But it's very clearly Mike McMahon directing one actor at a time in a lot of this video, uh, in a lot of this audio. Um, So I would say, by and large, that seems to be the case. It's one actor at a time. But I, I did appreciate when they talked about how loose it was and how Mike McMahon is very much open to experimentation and, as you said, improv. I just think you get really great stuff. And there's, like, moments where you'll get a string of them improving different lines. And you can see, like, some of it's not working at all. But what matters is that you do find that gold amid the various, you know, attempts at trying to find something. And look, it also depends on kind of
0: who your talent is. Like, uh, Tawny Newsom comes from, I, I think she's like a Second City improv uh, performer, you know, back in the day. Um, yeah, Jack Quaid, uh, you, you watch him on uh, Amazon Prime's The Boys. Like, he he is a good comedic actor. And I think that's why you've got him in for a Boimler sort of role. Did you, he actually originally auditioned for Ransom. Um, and oh. <laughs> it, it's just interesting because I guess, you know, Mike uh, McMahon
2: heard his voice said, you're no Jerry O'Connell, you're a boiler. (laughs) Did you walk away from this um, visit, or revisit, I should say, with um, either, you know, a heightened appreciation or uh, just, um, like, how much did you admire the voice cast on this show on the revisit?
0: Well, I'm still waiting for them to figure out what to do with Ransom. And, like, he still seems to be the most underdeveloped character at this point. But I I would say that I have more appreciation for Freeman um, as a captain. Um, this is one stressed out captain and it's understandable why. <laughs> um, and also I just really, really do like the, uh, dynamic between, uh, Mariner and Boimler. Like they do seem kind of like the, the perfect, you know, um, dynamic for, for two of your leads on a show. Like th- this is great. And so, um, but, but, uh, you know what the rewatch did reemphasize for me though, is like those last three episodes, if that is what the series is going to be moving forward, then I really think that they found their footing. Now, you and I, we've been tricked in the past with Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so we'll see what happens in season two. I was really blown away on the revisit of Tawny Newsom's performance, especially in the episode Crisis Point, where she's playing both, um, you know, Mariner as well as the villain kind of con like figure. And just the difference in how dynamic those two performances are, I walked away with a renewed appreciation for her as like a vocal talent on this show. And I'd like to see them give those levels of experimentation to some of the other actors going forward, because I think a lot of them are up for it. Um, Rutherford, you know, uh, he got a a fair amount. Eugene Cordero got a lot of moments just because of the implant and shifting personalities. But I'd like to see the other characters get to do interesting things as well. Yeah, like Peanut Hamper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Classic peanut hamper. So,
0: yeah, like, I, I'm looking forward to where we go in season two with the uh, Riker Titan dynamic. But doesn't it seem like it's one of those storylines that they set up where it's inevitably meant to be resolved within a few episodes? Like, I, I don't imagine the future of Lower Dax is half on the Cerritos,
2: half on the Titan, right? I can't imagine so. It's probably a, you know, small handful of episodes on the Titan because... Ultimately, like, the show is a comedy, and I think comedy depends on surprise. Is it that much of a fun surprise going forward if we're spending, like, (laughs) multiple seasons with Riker there? The fun is getting that character in for, like, three or four episodes, getting really great material out of him and Deanna Troy, and then moving on to something else.
0: Yeah, and I—well,
2: I don't know. Maybe we'll get
0: to move on to uh, Mariner under the tutelage of one Admiral Picard. Who knows?
2: (laughs) God, no. I would like to see more of Q, though. Like, that is one thing. I I laughed so hard on the revisit of just that moment of Q putting them on the game board Yes. in the Bizarre costumes. Like, the whole thing with Q is um, Q does amazing episodes of TNG. He will hopefully be amazing on Picard. But I think with Lower Decks, we could have a Q episode where we do really crazy things. Like, you know, the sky is the limit in terms of what visually you could do. Whereas you're always limited by budget and, you know, just physical actors on TNG, Voyager, um, and DS9.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I did notice on the rewatch as well, though, is the the hints of a Ransom Mariner romance uh, that we got in Temporal Edict. They're just completely dropped thereafter. I'm totally fine with that. I, I don't need them to bring it up again. I just wonder what they were kind of going for or whether they just realize very quickly, like, yeah, there's maybe this is just not going to work.
2: Yeah. It's very inappropriate. (laughs) Um, And and first officer. Yeah. Uh, But that that never stopped Riker. Right. True enough. Uh, Yeah. The power dynamics a little iffy, although Riker was doing this at a different time in television. (laughs) I don't know that they would write that character like that. Although Mike McMahon did say (laughs) that this was a show made in the nineties. True enough. True enough. Um, I think with like ransom, they went the smarter route of just really establishing him as kind of an idiot. Like, I think that's more funny and having that episode where uh, Mariner reunites with their friend and they're both just like giving the side eye at ransom the whole time. Like, I think that character's way funnier if that's the case versus him being like a viable romantic interest for one of your leads.
0: Yeah. Um, so other stuff that just like, I, I, I got a good laugh out of. It's like Da Vinci, like shotgunning, you know, like, <laughs> enemies and stuff like that that, i don't know like your love for da vinci is is well known on this uh show cam especially the uh Mm. concerning flight love that you have um so it's great to watch that um also just the references to the turbo lift lubing and sex in the holodeck you know like that's the sort of stuff that i i it's funny to listen to them play around
2: with that sort of stuff within the star trek universe I'm all about the visual flights of fancy. I mean, the episode of Veritas is a smorgasbord of those, but the entire like Rutherford implant malfunctioning where we are like basically getting snippets of a mission. So they don't really make any sense. I thought that was genius. Like that's the sort of thing when I see it, you could never do that on another Star Trek show. So like let's really exploit ideas like that because it's really fun. Filled with mythology for, you know, the you know the diehard fans, but just so clever.
0: Well, the other thing that strikes me about Lower Decks that I don't think that they can do on other shows, though, is just the visuals. In that I'm far more captivated by what they're trying to accomplish here visually, just from the space exterior shots, you know, playing around with the interiors. Like, just the design of their bunk space and how it looks upon the back of the ship, you know, like... It's just weird in that if you've got all the money in the world, like the budgets seem to indicate for Discovery and Picard, I it's you don't have to be as clever with 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 how you um, try to save on budgets and and tell visual storytelling in a very uh, I I guess a smarter way. Whereas this, I just I, I, I I'm in awe of some of the shots that we. Get in this, you know, where I wonder like, oh, wh- what is the thought process put into this versus just kind of, oh, that's just a piece of CG that they built on screen for, you know, giant orchids floating through. Like, I, I-, I can wrap my head around how they accomplish that. Whereas, Cam, you were mentioning, like, just that the process of animation just seems so much more complex.
2: Yeah. And you look at that episode Crisis Point, which is probably the high point artistically of the season in terms of visual storytelling, that well, whole just the tribute to the movies. Yeah, the direction and just all the visuals capturing the movie era, the grain on the film yep. and everything, the black lines. Um, y- This is, again, something that animation can do that live action could never hope to achieve. And it's the sort of thing that... I hope they continue to pursue going forward because I don't know that that's something when we started Lower Decks I expected um, episodes you know the first few of them one two three etc. Um, they looked great like I had no problem with them in terms of what they were showing but it didn't feel like a show that was going to be super ambitious visually it felt like it would stick to more of a tried and true you know comedy animation mode and then when we get episodes like Crisis Point or Small Parts at the end. It really feels like the show's saying, no, no, let's try to wow them. Now that they've understood the visual, you know, orientation of this universe, let's really hit them with some really impressive stuff. And I'm really glad they did because Star Trek at its best can do this. So I'm glad that they're not, you know, going to shirk on that with the animated show. Well, it's look, we we should have probably
0: known just based on Ephraim and Dot and the girl who made the stars, those previously animated short treks. And it makes me all the more intrigued by what they'll be doing with Star Trek Prodigy, the children's animated series. So, look, I I think this is just like our first kind of uh, big taste of what they're doing in animation. And look, I I think they're going to want to outdo themselves in future seasons as well. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun.
2: I just thought of an idea that would be really fun, is if they did an episode where they somehow wind up on the original animated series, with that level of animation.
0: Well, okay, Uh, I I love that moment in No Small Parts, where they're back on the Return Mm -hmm. of the Archons planets, and Landrew's there, and they're looking at the pad at Kirk and Spock, and those characters are represented in the uh, TAS style of animation so it would be amazing if maybe there is a time travel episode maybe this is how you bring back (laughs) finnegan cam and uh you know we have uh the universe represented that way like that style of animation i think that would be uh, just such a fun adventure to go on
2: and a really fun way to get a shatner appearance back on star trek do you think shatner would do the voice I want him to do it with the level of investment he did the original animated series, though. That has to be the joke. He cannot come in there like the, you know, bundle of energy we know from all these cons. I want the Shatner who is just phoning this in. (laughs) Okay, I I, I will 100% take that, but he
0: also has to say the word sabotage. Oh, of course, of course.
2: (laughs) I think he probably would, right? Like, they would write that. I think they got it, right? Uh, not that he necessarily get the reference, but it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Um speaking of a moment um that also I had a renewed um opinion on. It's something we talked a lot about the first time through, which was the um, you know, the orb, the space orb that shows up on the ship and shrinks and then flies into the captain. Did you have a different read on that moment on the revisit?
0: A little bit in that it's just supposed to be a throwaway. Like, I-, I thought we were thinking it was going to be something that pays off towards the end. Uh, maybe not,
2: but I, I don't know. What-, what was your takeaway this viewing? So I believe the point of the scene is that she keeps, you know, drawing things out of it, weakening it and weakening it to the point where it's just this insignificant dot so that when it flies into the captain, it just kind of fizzles out. Okay. I, I... I- I like that interpretation. Yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure what that's what it's going for, but I also think that is a visual weak point, that gag. Like, I don't think it works. The fact that you and I have been confused about this for about 11 months maybe indicates that it, it didn't quite land. Yeah, I wonder if we would have a different read on that moment if it weren't for, if we hadn't watched season one discovery where the green dot lands on Tilly's shoulder. That's true,
0: yeah, which, I mean, there was so much speculation about that, so,
2: okay, okay, yeah. I can buy that. Also, uh-huh. also, the child, right, where you had the small ball of light leading to, you know, um, Deanna's child. Like, m- there's been too many moments in Star Trek of people having dots <laughs> land on them and things happening. I think that's the problem. I-, I think what you're theorizing is that
0: this is alluding to Freeman becoming pregnant with a, a sibling for Mariner who
2: grows up quite fast and they become rivals on the Cerritos. I mean, you never know. This is a show that's, like, making tributes to the villain of The Hunted. (laughs) So, (laughs) I would not rule out anything. And that's one of the things that, even on the revisit, you kind of wonder, will it just feel like fan service the second time through? Like, will it feel as fresh and as exciting to see, you know, the Spock helmet and various things (laughs) like that? It did. It still works.
0: The the Spock helmet, like, just, that gets a chef's kiss out of me. You know, like, that that was an amazing moment there. Um, Cam... In terms of investing in uh, the Blu-rays, you know what What would you say for a fan? You've got the, um, I, I think the transfer looks spectacular. We watched this initially, I think, on streaming services here in Canada. Uh, I think the transfer looks beautiful. I think you get a lot of great extras. I just wish, you know, uh, Star Trek be willing to scratch a little bit below the surface in this new era. Um, overall, like, if you're willing to drop, you know, 30, 35 bucks, I think the Blu-ray is totally worth it.
2: Yeah, I agree. The steel case is beautiful as well, so I would recommend the steel case if you don't mind waiting (laughs) a while for it to show up. At least if you're Canadian. Uh, Yeah. The one thing I wish that this uh, show had done would be have some commentaries on episodes. I don't expect them on every episode. That's fine. Uh, I'm not going to hold creators to doing 10 episodes. I don't think they do that as much nowadays. But Maybe on No Small Parts, for example, maybe on the pilot, you know, maybe an episode like Crisis Point, ones that feel a little more notable within the run of the 10 episodes. I would have appreciated Mike McMahon's, you know, insights and some of the other writers on those various episodes moment to moment. What about an Alex Kurtzman commentary solo? Um... (sighs) I would love it because you and I have got no shortage of amusement just of various moments of Alex Kurtzman interviews or things he'll say on some of the Blu-rays. I did feel like I was robbed of that this time through. Um, I think the only moment that kind of made me laugh from Alex Kurtzman was they're talking about the music of the show and playing the theme for him um, for Lower Decks. And I believe it's Mike McMahon says like Alex Kurtzman has a real ear for themes. And I was like does he <laughs> uh, does he I don't know.
0: <laughs> uh, based on Picard and based on Discovery uh, I don't know I, it's weird and like I, I can more easily hum the Picard theme in my head than Discovery even though it, it's one versus three seasons of watching but even the Picard theme it, it's kind of tough for me to just do the melody though like I dare any listener right now to hum the Picard theme or or try to remember to hum the Discovery theme. Like, they just, they don't stick in your head
2: the way that the other series do. Yeah, like, when I think about the Picard theme, I can imagine it in my mind, but to actually hum it is impossible for me. Like, I just can't do it at all. Yeah. yeah and that's the same case of the Discovery one as well. So uh, I'm very thankful that uh, Lower Decks at least gave us one good theme out of this new era so far. I mean, I think they have to do something good, something old school for Strange New Worlds, right? They can't just do something kind of a wallpaper score. I I would love it if they just do kind of, you you know how like um,
0: the animated series did kind of a disco sort of theme? Mm -hmm. Like I wish they go like whether it's like super 60s or maybe because it takes place a decade before Kirk. What if it's kind of almost like a Dick Van Dyke sort of sounding theme? Like, I don't know. It's like something of its era. I, I think they could have fun with it.
2: I'm also wondering if they work in, like, female vocals the way that the original series did, because that would have that 60s sort of vibe as well. Uh, yeah, Rebecca Romijn, um, get on it. <laughs> Hit the mic. <laughs> Don't do it, Rebecca. Then you'll be cursed to have to perform this at every convention for the rest oh. of your life. <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth it. <laughs> Ethan Peck, you get on it. I know you're willing to do <laughs> the singing. Or just call up John Billingsley. He'll happily do it at every convention. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Tyler, what are we doing next time? Well, we're finally at the point
0: where we will be ranking the seasons of Star Trek Enterprise. We've done all the previous seasons of Star Trek, so this will be fun. And then, Cam, after that, we'll really be getting into kind of our last run of episodes before Lower Decks returns, and we'll be doing weekly recaps. And then after that, it looks as if Discovery will be premiering shortly thereafter, and so... Yeah. uh, And then it could be Picard right after that. And then Strange New Worlds right after that. We might be getting like a solid like
2: nine months of Star Trek uh, moving forward. I mean, as long as we have highs, I can do it. Just please don't give me multiple seasons like Discovery Season 3. I don't need more episodes like Sanctuary. No, yeah, no, no kidding. Um, and also, by the way, you know, you say we're doing Enterprise next week. Anyone interested in hearing me talk about the Enterprise episode Twilight, check out the Spocklight podcast where I did a guest spot um, just breaking down that episode. So Spocklight, they're they're out there. They're another good Star Trek podcast. Okay,
0: first Waylon is plugging his stuff. Now you're doing it. You guys feel very entitled. I know. Do you have anything you want to plug, Tyler? <laughs> Uh, there's no way I'm going to plug my work podcast. I don't think, uh, unless you're really, really interested in uh, the business scene here in uh, Metro Vancouver, um, don't need to recommend that one.
2: Okay, so you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V is in
0: Vindicta, Smith, and you can find me at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N is in
2: Nacelle Connector. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.
1: Transfer complete.